This week on The Truth, but we have a look at religious freedom. Is there any evidence of a crisis in Australia? We also have a look at why should Christians even care about the issue of religious freedom? And then we come back to the election campaign trail and we have a look at the science behind fear, uncertainty and doubt. G'day, I'm Martin Isles, and this is The Truth of It, ACL's weekly newscast on politics and current events when we cut through the fake news and bring you what it says on the tin, which is the truth of it. And today I want to start with a really important, if sometimes misunderstood topic, religious freedom. I want to take you back for a moment to the land, to describe the landscape in which we find ourselves. Go back to 2018, January, and we saw then that laws on same-sex marriage passed following the postal vote. Now, what that means is that Australian law now says that marriage is the union of two persons. It used to say it was the union of a man and a woman, to the exclusion of all others voluntarily entered into. Uh, and look, what that actually means is that the law defines what marriage must be. And I use that word must advisedly because laws in our system, in a common law system, are rules of right conduct. There's theorists throughout the centuries that have made that point. They're not sort of nudges in the right direction. They're not helpful suggestions. They're not just voluntary codes. They are the rules. You know, um, the biblical description of the ministry of a government is to uh, reward good and punish evil, is to really define what is right and what is wrong. And I actually think that governments do that anyway. That's a, that's a description of what governments do. They, they say what is right, they say what is wrong, and the law then enforces that. And so we as Christians have found ourselves in a situation, and indeed many people with different faith backgrounds, where we actually have a set of extremely fundamental beliefs that go to the very core of the creation narrative itself and our understanding of the universe, which are not just different to what the law says, but I think more strictly speaking, which are against the law, which are contrary to the law. Because we believe that marriage is the union of one man, one woman, voluntarily entered into, to the exclusion of all others, for life. And that is not what the law says marriage must be. Now, there's beliefs that flow out of that, particularly around the other creation ordinances, beliefs around family, beliefs around gender, beliefs around sexuality, all of which are now in some way contrary to what the law actually says, especially when you add the anti-discrimination frameworks into the mix, it becomes more serious because they are now weaponized against people with differing beliefs, particularly around sexuality, particularly around family, particularly around gender. Now, In other countries, many other Western countries, there are carve-outs in the law which sort of uh, are a nod to the fact that people sometimes have differences, religious freedom carve-outs, to say, look, there are differences within certain limits that you can have and you won't be punished for it. Those carve-outs do not exist in Australia. Australia, as as a Western nation, in law, has the worst religious freedom protections in the world. Um... We just don't have anything in this country compared to other Western countries. And that's why when the Marriage Act passed, um, there were certain people in the parliament who tried very hard to put some religious freedom amendments to the Marriage Act. They were excellent amendments. They actually were as good as you could possibly really get in in, in many ways. And it was um, Scott Morrison, then Treasurer, now Prime Minister, who was part of that, and Andrew Hastie and Michael Suker and others put amendments up. Now, they, of course, failed. And they failed because the Ruddock Review was supposed to happen. And then the Ruddock Review did happen. And the Ruddock Review was a massive disappointment. And the Ruddock Review was weak. And, you know, it proposed about 1% of the solution. It hasn't even been looked at since. Um, 
and everybody has all but forgotten it. Now, meanwhile, we ask ourselves, well, what is the situation with religious freedom in the Australian community? Is it really a problem? Should we really be concerned? Should we really be pursuing this issue? Well, let me run through some of the real-life stories of religious freedom problems in our own backyard. And I think there's several areas of religious freedom. One is freedom of speech. It's freedom to speak the truth without legal ramifications. Um, We only need to look at the saga of the last couple of weeks with Israel Folau to know that that is not always possible. Israel Folau, the question that is asked and answered in his, and will be answered in his case, is can you sack someone for quoting a Bible verse on their private social media account? That once would have seemed like an insane notion that that could happen. And yet, here we have a guy who is in that situation. He spoke truth, he published a Bible verse, and he now, for speaking up, is facing legal sanction. Or you could turn to the case of Jason Tay, a photographer from Perth. And Jason Tay uh, had a lesbian couple come to him and ask if uh, he would take their family photos. Now, Jason said that he would take the photos. And in fact, he was happy to take the photos. He didn't believe that it was a conflict of his conscientious beliefs there. But he uh, told the couple that he did have a conflict of belief. And the reason he was telling them was that if they were to feel uncomfortable about his conflict of belief, he would like them the opportunity to make a decision about who they choose as a photographer, but that he himself was very happy to take the job nonetheless. They sued him. He found himself at the State Administrative Tribunal. And the reason for that purely was that he stated his beliefs. That's it. He didn't decline service. He wasn't even intending to decline service. He merely said what he believed. Or we can look at Tasmania if we go to the legislative realm. Uh, In Tasmania, uh, we saw the compelled speech laws passed just recently in the upper house. These are laws which for the first time in Australian legal history don't just uh, prevent you from saying something but force you to say something. It's a real serious threshold we've crossed. You must use the preferred gender pronouns of any person. So if someone says, look, you need to call me not he or she, but Nim or Nur or Zay or Jay or Zem or, or Nurself or, or all these ridiculous, there's thousands and thousands of, of pronouns that a person can choose. And if you do not use those pronouns when you refer to the person, then that is, uh, that infringes their provisions on uh, hate speech. Um, that's incredible. We've come a long way, and that could spread to other areas. Uh, This is the state where there was already the law where it said that it was unlawful to offend somebody on a whole range of grounds, and no lawyer knows what that means, uh, to offend. At what point can you offend? It's such a subjective idea. Um, Quoting the Bible would offend some. Uh, Archbishop Julian Porteous fell foul of the law. Why? Because he published a booklet on same-sex, on the church's beliefs on marriage. It's a perfectly reasonable and decent booklet, but it offended somebody. Same thing, uh, similar sort of circumstances with uh, Presbyterian Pastor Campbell Markham, and that will not be the end of the matter. Or you can look at Cathy Club at the High Court of Australia recently with every Attorney General in the country arrayed against her. Why? What was her crime? She was charged with communicating about abortion in a way that can be seen or heard within one of those 150 metre buffer zones. Why was she doing that? Well, she's a sidewalk counsellor for years. She has seen more than 300 babies born alive and their mothers helped through her ministry. She's not allowed to do it anymore. She's not even allowed to communicate in a way that can be seen or heard in the very place where her ministry was effective in the past, in the High Court of this country. Few cases get there with all the attorney generals against her. And you ask yourself, well, how's free speech going? Uh, Not great. Um, There really are problems for those who care to see. And there really are problems for many people, especially those in professional firms and places like that, uh, where their jobs are at risk, 
uh, and where they cannot speak up. Or we can turn to another part of religious freedom, which is freedom of association. That means freedom for churches, for schools, for charities, for other clubs to basically promote their Christian ethos, um, to associate around it, if you like, is the best way to put it. Uh, How's that going? Well, at the end of last year, we saw that the ALP put up an amendment to the Sex Discrimination Act. And what would that have done? They claimed that the reason they did that was to stop uh, 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 gay students being expelled from faith-based schools problem that wasn't actually happening. And what the law actually was intended to achieve and what it actually would have achieved is it would have made lawsuits possible against any faith-based school that taught the Bible, any faith-based school that upheld their ethos in the uh, way that they run the school and in the rules and conduct that they have and in the the policies and codes that they have, uh, and any faith-based school that had traditional beliefs, especially around sexual orientation, gender, family, and marriage. Um, That's what would have happened. Christian schooling as we know it would have been in serious trouble if that had passed. And the ALP have promised that they will pursue that if they win government and they will go further. They will prevent Christian schools and faith-based schools as a whole from being able to employ staff that share their ethos, um, which means really it's, it's pretty difficult to um, create a Christian environment where you don't have staff that uphold the ethos of the school. Mind you, they still retain that freedom for their political party to hire staff and to have volunteers that share their ethos, but what's good for the goose is not good for the gander. Um, We've had cases already against faith-based schools, uh, usually transgender activist groups, holding them over a barrel, saying we will take you to court because of your policies if you don't change them. Uh, And we've had to get involved and help a few schools in that situation already before such laws have even passed. Um, We have serious issues on the freedom of association front. Um, Freedom from discrimination. Uh, You know, what about the Israel Folau thing that I mentioned before? There's a guy who's going to lose his $4 million a year contract, very likely, or at least they're trying, um, because he quoted a Bible verse on social media. Or the university student that I've often spoken about, a guy called Joshua. Uh, What did Joshua do? Well, with the permission of a friend on university campus, with her permission, he prayed for her because she was experiencing anxiety. And then later on, his friends challenged him and asked him what he believes about homosexuality and answered it in a very winsome and and excellent way. Uh, And because of those two incidences, um, which one was one was with permission and the other one was, was asked of him. Uh, he was suspended from university. He had discipline put on his um, academic certificate, um, on his, uh, on his um, academic record, uh, which would have impl- uh, prevented his employment prospects in the future. Uh, and he was going to be put in fortnightly counselling um, to learn how to interact with his peers. Uh, incredible. What about the school teacher that we've helped? You know, a guy who posted on social media about same-sex marriage in his own time and was stood down pending review uh, with the relevant education department or a medical doctor who went into a school and gave a Christian presentation, uh, particularly around sexuality and gender issues and actually put the gospel in and, 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 and spoke the gospel in a Christian school. But that talk was put online and activists saw it. What happened? Well, that, that medical doctor uh, lost their membership of a professional uh, body uh, over that. And also their, their relationship with the university was challenged and nearly lost that, but were, that was able to be saved, fortunately, uh, with some legal help from, from our law firm. Um, the general manager that was fired from a, a digital services agency because he was challenged about what he thinks on safe schools and answered the question very reasonably uh, when challenged and was actually fired from his position. Uh, I could go on. We've got stacks of cases in that category. People being fired, people losing jobs, people losing uh, accreditations with professional bodies and so on and so on and so on. Or freedom for parents. What about that area? Here's uh, the fourth. We've done what? Freedom of speech, freedom of association, freedom from discrimination. Number four, freedom for parents. What about the opportunity for parents to ensure that they raise their children according to their values and not suffer for it? 
Well, we're currently doing a foster parents case uh, where a foster fa- a family wanted to foster children, mind you, under the age of six, uh, and they applied to an agency and the agency took them through the whole process and they passed everything with flying colours. But in the end, they failed because the agency said, we don't think that you can make a safe home for foster children. And it was off the back of them completing a survey about their Christian beliefs on sexuality and gender. Or we can look at the uh, school programs and we see that parents don't have the opportunity to opt out of those programs anymore. Uh, In most states, there's no framework at all for parents to take their kids out of a safe school-style class. Um, Or indeed the fact that most of these schools, through the education department policies that are coming through in each state, can now legitimately and legally socially transition at least a child from one gender to another without ever telling the parents. Let me read to you, actually, from the Victorian Education Policy on Gender Diversity. It says this, it says there may be circumstances in which students wish or need to undertake gender transition without the consent of their parents or carers and or without consulting medical practitioners. So it's all in the hands of the school. If no agreement can be reached between the student and the parents regarding the student's gender identity, or if the parents will not consent to the contents of a student support plan, it will be necessary for the school to consider whether the student is a mature minor, etc., There you go. That's one example of a state education department policy as it exists right now. So Harry could actually go to school and be Sally and wear lipstick and a dress and be referred to as such and continue speaking to a school counsellor about his gender dysphoric issues and be directed towards a situation of puberty blockers without his parents ever knowing. It's incredible. Um, And uh, um, uh, this is in a state in Victoria where it is unlawful to get a tattoo if you're under 18, even with your parents' permission. The double standard is incredible. Minors can't buy alcohol, they can't vote, they can't smoke, they can't get a tattoo even with permission. And yet we're supposed to believe that a school can make an independent decision, quite apart from a parent's moral beliefs or or even just sensible convictions on this stuff. Um, they can make that decision and put them towards a pathway of puberty blockers and then irreversible surgery in which they mutilate their own bodies um, and it can't be undone. Freedom for parents, I'd say that that's one of the most concerning phenomena of the last few months. This is becoming a major issue and every Christian parent really needs to hear this and understand it. Um, Conversion therapy laws probably are the most serious Uh, uh, thing coming down the pipeline on this. A conversion therapy law, actually, uh, some of them, some of the policies that are drafted say that if parents stand in the way of what a school is doing under those circumstances, they will be, and I quote, labelled psychological abusers and domestic abusers. I quote. Now, there's only one outcome of that, and the one outcome of that is that those parents will lose their children. That's what the activists want That's where they're pushing. And if you read the conversion therapy policies that are out there, you will see it loud and clear. They're not even hiding anymore. Freedom for parents. Wow, that's a problem. That's a real problem. Finally, freedom of conscience. Are we in a situation where Christians could be actually coerced against their conscience by law? 
Yes, well, we are. I mean, we already are. People in the wedding business, people in the, um, you know, counselling, wedding counselling business, people in the butcher baker, candlestick maker type of businesses, we call them, uh, you know, photographers and, and wedding cake makers and florists and musical um, groups uh, and all those service providers, particularly ones that are actually involved in the wedding in a significant degree, um, they don't have any right to conscientious objection at all. They'll be breaking the law if they say, I can't participate in that wedding or this wedding. Uh, meanwhile, you know, photographers, if they don't want to do certain work, that's normally fine. Do we get upset with a photographer just saying, I don't take artistic nudes or we don't do pornographic stuff or we don't do, you know, or we don't do certain political groups? Of course we don't. But they're forced, forced to do every kind of wedding that comes their way or indeed the counselling business or the baby showers or the wedding showers and the infinite number of things that accompany the wedding industry which frankly a lot of Christians are involved in because Christians hold marriage in high regard. Many who have contacted us have had to leave their businesses because they have no other choice. They may face lawsuits. They cannot be coerced against their conscience and many of us will know um, about the abortion uh, doc, the, the abortion referral laws as well in many states where if somebody, a woman comes to a doctor and asks for an abortion and the doctor has a conscientious objection, that's not good enough. The doctor has to refer the woman to another doctor who the doctor knows does not have a conscientious objection. And for many people that's no better. For many people that's just being complicit in the process but the law says they must do it, at least in Victoria and Queensland. Well, How's religious freedom in Australia really when we look at the facts? I mean, this is the world that I live in. Uh, we see this day in, day out. This is going on all over the country. It's getting worse. And people who are ideologically opposed to freedom are really making huge headway. But see, here's the thing. Neither side of the major parties seems to have a plan on this. It's fallen into the background of the election campaign. Um, the coalition have provided what I'll call some fig leaves, a bit of this and a bit of that. They've promised a Religion Discrimination Act, which covers one of those five major areas that I, that I mentioned. And frankly, it could be useless. Uh, there's, there's real uh, need for, for care with the drafting with the Religious Discrimination Act. And I think a careful drafting will be controversial. So will they bother with it? I don't know. I really don't know. But they have said they'll look at that. Uh, that's something right? It's a few percent of the, of the solution. They've said they'll protect charities that have a traditional marriage belief. Okay, that's a teeny bit in the bucket of the freedom of association thing. It's just for charities. It's just for marriage. They've said that they will do that. Um, they've also said that they'll initiate a review of the exemptions to anti-discrimination laws. And they want to do that through the Australian Law Reform Commission. That'll take ages. Who knows what the outcome will be? If the Ruddock Review is anything to teach us, it'll be pretty bad um, or pretty hopeless, a lame duck. So yeah, there's... Um, that much from the coalition. Um, the ALP, however, have um, the Australian Labor Party have consistently and vehemently denied. Every time we've approached anyone, we've never had anything but denial that there is a problem. Never had anything but um, but just a, a complete blankness, a complete lack of understanding of what's going on, and an unwillingness to engage with the problem and an unwillingness to see the problem. Um, I'm yet to engage with, I think that's true, I mean there might be one or two, but I'm yet to engage with someone from Labor federally who doesn't take that line. Um, and uh, the difference, I mean, and, and they're actually pushing in the wrong direction. They've brought in the school freedom bill at the end of last year, which I dealt with, which would have really hurt Christian schools. They're talking about conversion therapy laws, which will which will just... Oh, Christian families will be in massive trouble under conversion therapy laws. Uh, and also in Tasmania, they introduced the compelled speech laws from opposition. 
Um, so there we have overt hostility evidenced in so many ways. And so here's the thing. You'll have either way, you've got a party. The difference will be this. The attitude of the parties to this issue is definitely different. Um, the ALP is more hostile. But in particular, the attitude of the leaders to this issue is drastically different. Remember Scott Morrison actually moved those amendments to the Marriage Act that were very, very good to protect a lot of religious freedom? Uh, and he does have uh, some conviction around this. He really does. I know that for a fact. So his attitude to the issue is strong, whereas Bill Shorten's attitude to the issue is actually, well, he's against it, frankly. Um, and um, therefore... There's opportunity with the coalition that there isn't with Labor. But what it does mean is that no matter what happens post-election, if the Christian community does not, in an organised and concerted way, uh, stand up and speak with one voice on religious freedom and show the major parties that this is something that's going to affect them in the next term of parliament, nothing will be done. But it will be a far easier environment in which to get something done if we still have Scott Morrison as Prime Minister. If we have the ALP in government, which remains likely, it will be an uphill battle. But I want to say it's not impossible. We must get active and press back on this. Because as I have just described to you with just a very small number of the examples that are out there, this is a serious situation and we don't want to see conditions continue to drastically worsen. And in order to do that... I ask you to stand with us after the election in the next term of Parliament and raise our voice. Um, I'm going to turn now to the second part of the religious freedom question, and I think this is really important. And in fact, some of you might have been asking it, asking this question after the last segment. Uh, And the question is, why does religious freedom matter? Because it does matter, and I think it matters from a Christian perspective. And I want to quote a verse of Scripture, which I often refer to when I write. Uh, And it is that prayer of Paul that he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2. And he says to Timothy to pray, what for? Well, he says, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Saviour, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, I think this is very significant, because if you read that carefully, what you see is that Paul is saying to these people, pray for religious freedom. Now, sometimes when I travel around, I almost hear people praying for persecution, which is very, very foolish. If persecution comes, God, you know, we pray that God will lead us through it in his his, his sovereign will. But nobody prays for that because the darkness that it brings into a society and the destructive nature of it is evil and wrong. He says here, pray actually that the godly life would be a life of peace and dignity. That means what a godly life means, a life in which the witness of Jesus Christ is made clear. That means the life that is following his commands to be salt and light, to do things in the world out of the power of a converted life to change the world. Uh, that is the life in which, you know, the, the church is flourishing uh, and the church is doing its ministry to preach the gospel to all nations. Make sure, he says, that that's a life of peace. Why? Because this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Saviour. And you say, well, why would that be? Well, I think there's two things that are apparent. The first thing that's apparent is that if that paradigm exists in a society, It is a society, therefore, in which the kings, the rulers, the prime ministers, the ministers, the the, the MPs are fulfilling their God-given ministry. 
Their God-given ministry, you see, in the Bible, and this is from start to finish, Old Testament and New Testament, is captured in that phrase that righteousness exalts a nation. Or, as it's specifically put, when Solomon prays his prayer for wisdom, or in Romans 13, or in 1 Peter 2, governments sent by God to punish evil and reward good. Now, if that's what the government is doing, then it means that those who are doing good and living consistent with truth in the society, it means that they are going to be free. It means they are not going to be punished. And it means actually those in society who are doing wrong will be punished instead. So it means that a government would be doing the ministry that God has given it under these circumstances. But more directly in the context, there's something else that's very interesting. He says it's good and it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people everywhere to come to a knowledge of the truth. And I think in this is a meaning that we haven't seen before because we haven't seen a society in which religious freedom is is, is closing down in the West. But it seems to me here that he's saying, do you know what? Under this paradigm, the truth itself will be free. Under this paradigm, people will come to a knowledge of the truth because the lives of godliness in the society to witness to the truth and to speak the truth will be flourishing. And they will be able to do their job and the truth will spread in that world. Now you think about it, that's got to be true. You think about, say, a young person growing up in today's world or a young person growing up 10 years ago or 20 years ago. It's very likely that Sunday school would have been a far more um, likely option for them. It's very likely that scripture would have been in their school. It's likely they could have been going to a Christian school uh, where the Christian school was overtly and unashamedly Christian. Um, Or even 10 years ago in, in, in the ACT, there would have been like a Christian chaplain, which they wouldn't necessarily have today. Things have changed. Or it's even more likely their parents would go to church uh, years ago. But we see now today, you see a young person growing up with what being put into their minds? With what coming through their education system? With how many times would they even notice a church, let alone attend a church? How many Christian values would influence? You see suddenly actually their touch points with truth are shut down. And you know, I I think honestly, that's why things like schools are targeted. That's why families are targeted because they are places where particularly young people come to a knowledge of the truth. And it must be true that this prayer means that a life in which godliness is a society in which the life of godliness are lives of peace, so the truth is known and proclaimed in greater measure. And that's why persecution is so serious. I think we've forgotten how dark evil really is and how dark it is when the light of the witness of Jesus Christ is extinguished in a society. Look around the world and see other countries where that's true and see how bad it is, right? So we never pray for that. We pray for freedom. But let me say this. He says pray. And it's true. Prayer is of primary importance. Never forget it. However, he couldn't do anything else. He couldn't say to Timothy, when you vote on Saturday. He couldn't say to Timothy, when you visit your MP next week. He couldn't say to Timothy, by the way, when ACL and other groups come to you and say, you know, there's an opportunity to stand up for truth here in relation to your civil authorities. There was no such chance. And you know, I think sometimes we've forgotten that we have a great gift. We have a great gift of democratic freedom in this country. 
where we can do so much. We can pray and we can act. And in that action, we can actually make a stand for what is right because it's good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Saviour, not merely that this paradigm be realised in a society, but the truth doesn't stumble in the public squares, as it says in Isaiah 59, and that his people continue to be lights like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. That obvious in the world for all to see, so they cannot unsee the Christian community. And unfortunately, I think we're hiding in plain sight in many regards. And so we should act. And I used to think that the best way to act was to argue for freedom. But I have since realized that it's not freedom we argue for. The real target in the shutting down of freedom, the real target is the truth. It's the people who tell the truth who get in trouble. It's Israel Folau who gets in trouble. It's Archbishop Porteus who gets in trouble. It's Joshua, the university student, who gets in trouble. It's people who are being salt and light. It's people who are using their gifts and talents in the service of God. It's people who are telling truth. And it's the same in other countries under very different laws. I was interested to see the cases of blasphemy in Pakistan, where they have anti-blasphemy laws, which you'd say, well, that's the closing down of free speech. Argue for free speech and freedom of religion. Do you know what? It's the Christians that get targeted. It's the people who say, like Asya Bibi said, my Christ died for me. What has Muhammad done for you? It's the truth that's the target. And so here's the answer. We need to be bold in the truth. We need to speak the truth and we need to stand firm on the truth. Because, you know, the more we are silent, the more we will be silenced. And that is not good and pleasing in the sight of God, our Saviour, who desires all people everywhere to come to a knowledge of the truth. I'm going to turn now to the question of political campaigning. Um, it's, uh, it's a vexed thing, you know, and I actually want to go here because I want to show us something. Um, with the Australian Christian Lobby, our motto is truth made public. Now, that's something that's sorely needed, I believe, and it's based on a scripture in Isaiah 59 where God decries the fact that truth has stumbled in the public squares. And therefore, he says, well, if truth's gone, righteousness cannot enter because we don't have the truth about right and wrong, good and evil. But then he says, and also justice is turned back. Why? Because if you don't know what's good and evil, you cannot enforce justice. You can't punish evil and reward good as the mandate for governments is in scripture. Um, and so ACL's motto is truth made public. Uh, because we make that public stand. And it's easy to see in, in many ways why that's needed, especially when we see in that same scripture that, 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 that phenomenon come to pass where he who, stands, he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. And all the cases I've talked about so far really show that, show people who stood up for truth, who, who have done right and have made themselves a prey, have had the, the, uh, had the forces of the law leveled against them and all the rest of it. You see it in obvious ways, but it's also so in subtle ways. And it's, it's, it's the case in a subtle way that truth has stumbled in the public squares insofar as the very rules of political engagement have changed. And the rules of political engagement have changed in this way. It's no longer a truth-telling exercise to engage in politics, in public and election campaigns and so forth. It's no longer an exercise of convincing people that what you have is the truth and to bring them on that journey with you. It's rather an exercise in beating your opponent or it's an exercise in saying, doing, acting according not to what's true but whatever works at all costs because what works will deliver you victory and victory will deliver you power. And we will see that more and more. 
a departure from truth towards power. Because the ideas that have fed into our modern age deny truth and exalt power. It's a very dangerous place for us to be heading. But you know, in political campaigns, there's so many examples of that playing out. For example, if I take you back to 2016 and we step inside the Australian Labor Party's campaign machine, they did a poll and that poll showed that 50% of voters, once the idea was put into their head, thought, yes, it is possible that the coalition would would, uh, privatise Medicare. And then they looked at the same poll and they saw that 81% of voters would be unhappy if any changes at all were made to Medicare. And then something else happened. They got Malcolm Turnbull on camera saying Medicare will never, ever, ever be privatised. That was what they needed. Because to the average punter, it might just look like Malcolm Turnbull is protesting too much. And so they launched Medi-Scare. 2016, very famous campaign, robocalls into marginal seats uh, right near the end of the campaign period, alleging a secret plan by the Liberal Party, by the coalition, to privatise Medicare. Was it true? No. Was it remotely true? No. Did it work? You bet it worked. They gained swings to them in the polls. It had a massive political effect and it nearly brought the coalition out of government. Why did they do it? Well, they did the polling and they knew that they could do something. Whatever it took, lies, fear, smear, anything to win. And so they did. But you know it's playing out continually. We know this in our gut, but let's look at this election. We're going to the polls on May the 18th. Um, and you can look to the West Australian seat of Curtin, Julie Bishop's old seat. There's an independent candidate, Rachel Louise Stewart, who's running in Curtin. And she uh, put out a statement that she had a strong chance of winning Julie Bishop's old seat. And she supplied polling to prove it. Uh, she gave a PDF report to the West Australian newspaper, which was purportedly polling done by UCOMS on behalf of ReachTel, which is a major polling company. Uh, and it showed that the Liberals faced a 20% swing against them in Julie Bishop's old seat. Here's the problem. UCOMS and ReachTel subsequently confirmed that no such poll was ever commissioned. So it was a complete lie. Why? Well, might just get us some, somewhere in politics, or it might just achieve some political objective like turn people off the Liberals, which may have been her goal. Or we can turn to what is the current scare campaign? The death tax. Um, both sides see a vying for older voters. Uh, and they know within all of their polling that there's either the older voters could really go either way, but it's probably a bigger opportunity for the Liberals because they are traditionally blue voters. And not only that, they, the polling would show that they have uh, uh, scepticism about Labor's economic management and tax plans because they will have seen enough in their life to have gained that scepticism because of key events in the past. And so you might say, well, as a Liberal Party strategist, how could we exploit that? what could we do? It's very simple. Just claim that Labor want to introduce death taxes. Um, And that's what they did. And Shorten got wind of the idea and he he said this. He came out unprovoked and publicly said, while we're on the issue of scare campaigns, I want to call out the latest bit of rubbish from the government lie machine. That is the so-called death tax. Labor has never had any plan for a death tax under my leadership. But see, like Medi-Scare, they suddenly had him protesting on camera. And it was really hours after that that the Liberal Party released a new ad linking Bill Shorten's denial with Julia Gillard's famous statement, there will be no carbon tax under the government I lead. And so it was on. Now, 
<laughs> if you can't beat them, join them. And that's exactly what the ALP have done. Uh, so now they're accusing the coalition uh, with some old footage of Scott Morrison on radio a few years ago. They're accusing the coalition of having their own plans to introduce a death tax. And that's now where it's going. So if there's polling that tells you that a particular lie might just get you some brownie points, it seems now the aim is to just lie because you might win. Um, Caricature and parody and character assassination are really the order of the day. Um, On Facebook, for example, I've seen so many ads. You see Peter Dutton's head on a dinosaur's body and it says, this man doesn't, it's got a placard around his neck saying, I don't believe in progress. And you go, well, what does that even mean? It achieves nothing except make him look stupid. Uh, Tony Abbott refusing to rescue a drowning swimmer uh, sitting on the beach eating an onion. That was Get Up's campaign. Uh, Again, ridiculous. Uh, And they pulled the ad not because it was character assassination, not because it was untrue, but because they felt like that offended lifesavers and nobody really wants to offend lifesavers. So it wasn't even for the best of reasons that they removed that ad. Or, um, you know, ScoMo, Scott Morrison, uh, nodding uh, with a stupid expression on his face uh, to clips of Clive Palmer and Pauline Hanson saying ridiculous things. What's the point? Why are those things amalgamated together? Just to make him look stupid. But what does it do, particularly for young people who are into the meme game on Facebook and social media? It just tribalizes them. It gets them embedded into the camps and laughing and pointing the finger at the other. Is it true? No. Does it work? Yes. Um, and that's the point. That's what it's all about. Do you know what works in political campaigns? And people are always saying, why are the ads always negative? Why is it always fear, etc.? Well, because I'll give you an acronym from the political world, FUD, F-U-D, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Every time fear wins over hope. All the polls show it, all the focus groups show it, all the research shows it, everything shows it. And so if you can exploit fear and you can use dark clouds and, and nasty expressions and all this kind of thing, and you can, even one ad I saw had lightning striking in the background. Why? Because you put fear in people's hearts and it works far more powerfully. Uncertainty, it's far more powerful. 75% of Labor's ad spend in the last federal election was on negative ads. And I actually think that's probably a bit low uh, compared to the usual these days. Negativity works. And so this is going to continue to get worse. Throw out a scare campaign that's baseless. And people will be swept along more and more because they're increasingly disengaged with politics. People aren't listening to politicians. People aren't following the political world. So it comes to an election campaign. They don't have any basis for how to understand their representatives. And they suddenly become engaged. They see all these ridiculous campaigns. And they go, oh, well, that guy wants a death tax. That guy wants to privatise Medicare. And none of it is true. But the parties know that that's what it takes now to win. And they will exploit it. And that's how the political process works in 2019 Australia. We're going to see it more. This is why I think that the motto of ACL is so important, truth made public, because there needs to be a voice for truth in the public squares. There needs to be an organisation that's reliable because we will stand on the truth and we will always tell the truth and we won't be sucked in to those things that are not based on truth. That's very, very important. Because, do you know, I believe that those who don't stand on the truth, all their efforts will amount to nothing. Wood, hay and stubble, as the Bible says. They will be fruitless, they won't last, uh, and in fact, they'll do a lot of harm over the long term. But the truth always yields fruit. 
the truth is always something that God can and does use, especially when it's his word, which he says never returns void. And so we need someone in changing times, in changing circumstances, to stand on the truth and proclaim that truth. So that, as we said in the prayer in the last segment, all men everywhere might come to a knowledge of the truth, because that's good and pleasing in the sight of God our Saviour. It's really important. But I want to say this. It's not just about us. It's about you. And my vision, really, for this Truth Made Public movement is that it would be a movement of hundreds of thousands of Christians across the country, not relying on others to tell the truth, but actually embodying it themselves. That's why we have campaigns. That's why we have a platform. That's why we create opportunity for thousands of people from the grassroots, from the Christian world, to stand up and speak with boldness and in an organized and concerted way that can be heard and can make a difference. And I think that if we do that, there's actually 1.8 million weekly churchgoers in Australia, let alone fortnightly, etc. I think that if we do that, a tremendous difference could be made. We just need to get on and do it. And this is why it is so important, because truth truly has stumbled in the public squares. And it's time that we together are able to make truth public. So pray for us, pray for that effort, and please consider what it is that you can be doing over the next few years in that regard. And that's why I always say at the end of these episodes, that was the truth of it.